This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. It is the grapevine with Kalia and Dylan for the next couple of hours and we have a government. It's still not 100% clear if it will be a minority or majority Turnbull government but with the support of Indi Independent Cathy McGowan and the sort of support of Bob Catter, Malcolm Turnbull shored up his cabinet really for not cabinet they're not in it but you know the government to be sworn in later this week and um while there's parallels with 2010 the atmosphere around this government is completely different to when julia gillard was negotiating a minority government why is it so and perhaps um you know it's because there's more women in parliament or because the alp says it's not going to be the wrecking ball that tony abbott was in opposition there's probably lots going on there. Mary Crooks, uh, Mary's with the um, Victorian Women's Trust and, uh, yeah, very different times, it seems, with this majority-minority government compared to when Julia Gillard was negotiating a similar thing just six years ago. Change is the only constant. Uh, it is a different look and feel and, in part, I suspect it's because uh, because both major parties... When, when you have an unprecedented percentage of people who are voting for the non-major parties... If that doesn't tell you that there's something wrong with how the major parties are operating and either listening or not listening or whatever it is, I don't think they get the extent of the malaise. They don't get the extent of the fact that you could have a week before the poll some 30% of people undecided. I mean, I think they'd decided, they'd decided the major parties were not deserving of their vote. So we, we need to see some deep analysis within the major parties themselves of that. And we, I mean, we, we spoke last week about the first Indigenous woman voted to the House of Reps. Um, that is you know a positive of the of this um election but we're also seeing particularly on the alp side record numbers of women entering parliament not just in marginal seats but in safe seats and i think that's uh, also an interesting development for development for the 45th parliament it, it's a very good development and that's and that's not a miraculous conception either that's because there's been so much hard work done uh you know work done by women in emily's list in victoria for example not just in supporting women candidates but actually getting the labor party itself committed uh to a, a baseline quota of women i mean I, I think frankly debates about quotas you know people can take uh, strong positions on them but i i think that we have to have some interventions to to break the glacial speed uh, as far as getting women into parliament i think the liberal party itself recognizes that it's got to do something much more concrete and interventionist we're hearing them aren't we saying more and more you know um, really significant people in the liberal party saying we need to get younger women and women in general mm. into our party i mean they they only had a quarter of candidates women for this election yeah yeah i think that's i think they've woken up to that and i mean indi was a particularly interesting um kind of seat to watch this year with uh kathy mcgowan um again up against sophie mirabella in that seat and and of course won it at the the last election and, and won it again this time around with a further swing in her favor what's your reading of that particular result look i think and i think in some parts of the media aren't terribly interested in what you know you might call more process side of things for a start i i think it's been fascinating to watch their treatment of Cathy in that when Cathy actually threw her hat into the ring um, three years ago, she was actually one of the most credentialed people, man or woman, to enter the parliament. I mean, she had a long, long career and experience as a farmer, as a businesswoman. She was co-founder of the uh, uh, Agricultural Women, uh, incredibly seasoned and experienced. She knows, she knows how budgets fall down onto government departments and so on. So she was, in fact... Uh, a hugely uh, talented and credentialed person to enter Parliament. But leaving that aside, and, and I might add that, you know, when you're a non-lawyer, because so many of our politicians either sides are lawyers, no disrespect to lawyers, but you actually need uh, a raft of experience outside the law in order to be able to govern and, and do policy well. <clears throat> but I think one of the striking things about Cathy and her campaign and her volunteers and her staff and whatever... When I became involved with them back in 2012 and we did a whole lot of work on how the voice for Indi would take itself out to the electorate and run the kitchen table conversations and so on, I think the voice for Indi people would be the first to remember back then that they were part of the quiet slagging off against Sophie Mirabella. You know, they were making personal comments about her and so on. When they got down to work to say, well, 
the kind of values that they needed to represent a respect for the other, a respect for democracy and so on, <clears throat> when we identified that as a key value, they were reminded very gently that day that you can't have it both ways. You can't actually be personal and and uh, and gripe in a personal way about a person and go out and talk to people about being a respectful group. And they understood that. And from that day onwards, that was the day before Cup Day 2012, the group, including Cathy, committed to being respectful of, uh, of opposition, of people who didn't support them, and so on. And one of the phrases that they've brought ever since the last three years is bringing their best selves. I love that phrase. I usually w use the word one's best side. But I have heard Cathy speak to volunteers and supporters by saying we, have, we continue to bring our best selves... Now, I don't think that's a, a corny kind of romantic notion. I think that's part of the hunger that people are feeling about the political debate. They feel as though people are not bringing their best selves. And I think the, the um, awful stuff that's going across social media, stuff that makes your hair stand on end, really, is because we are giving quiet licence for people to bring their worst selves. It's interesting, debates. isn't it? And I, I mean, I, I do warm to that idea that we, we can actually have a constructive parliament. And I'm, I'm, I'm liking what I'm hearing from all sides at the moment that they're going to make this parliament work, etc. But I was interested with, um, with Cathy McGowan that she put her support behind the Turnbull government, but didn't seem to ask for anything. And I wonder in return, and I wonder what you think about that. Because, and again, I've, I've, watched and and heard that right up and i'm not knowing kathy i'm not at all surprised at the position she's taken she's taken a principled honest position she rep she's thought about her electorate it is largely a conservative electorate she's not there to make one idiosyncratic decision as a parliamentarian she's there to represent all of the people in her electorate uh it is one thing to to commit to um supply and uh, voting on, a, you know, uh, keeping the confidence in the lower house and not being a maverick. Uh, but it's another thing to say in all conscience she will examine every piece of legislation. I think that's, again, her bringing her best self to to her um, construction of representation. And I wonder about the... I guess the relevance or significance of, of the old parties today, because many regional, seat, regional seats are kind of uh, locks for the National Party or, or the Liberal Party. It's been, until fairly recently, assumed that they'll simply be re-elected. Re in the case of Cathy McGowan, I mean, she does represent a traditionally conservative electorate, but her policy platform's quite progressive. She supports same-sex marriage, for example. She um, believes in action on climate change and, and, and emissions trading scheme and so on. So do you think that perhaps we don't or, or haven't until now fully understood the complexities of regional communities and, and where they might stand on particular issues? Uh, no, Dylan, I take it just a different... I think there is that, but I, I think it's more a question of the fact that uh, this is not rocket science and people want their political representatives to <coughs> say who they are <coughs> excuse me, and stand up for what they believe in. <coughs> excuse me. And I think one of the... You contrast Cathy's position that she can be... Um, in favour of same-sex marriage and not disputing the climate science, um, but also not necessarily, you know, be fully ad across a whole lot of other policies of the centre-left. Uh, uh, contrast that with Malcolm Turnbull, who six months ago uh, came in with great fanfare and the great disappointment... I mean, I wish him good luck in the next three years, but the great disappointment is that it, he seems to have be saying to people, you might think you know who I am but I'm not letting you quite know what's gone on as to, you know, the deals that have been done. And I think that's been a lot of the cause of, mm. of the disconcerting. It's down 27 minutes to 10 o'clock and uh, we've got Mary Crooks with us, Executive Director of the Victoria Women's Trust. And let's um, leave um, Australia and, and head over to the UK, Mary, because what's going on with the run for the, the new Prime Minister of um, in the in the UK Parliament, um, Theresa May, um, Andrea Leadsom, something about one of them being childless. What? 
well, you know, we're used to that debate, aren't we? Because that kind of Absolutely. stuff was thrown at Gillard. I was actually quite shocked, and I, uh, I, I imagine that you weren't shocked that such such an issue has come up in what I, you know, what looks like it might be a, a nasty fight for that for that role. Uh, look, I'm not shocked because the sexism that swirled around Gillard hasn't gone away. It just has become submerged since since the leadership has been by um, Turnbull and Shorten it's gone back to men so the, the seams of sexism that were exposed in the Gillard era have not been dissipated, they've just been covered up again and I've just come back from the States uh, and you know, I, I was troubled not, you know um, troubled to, to read that there were t-shirts for example by Trump supporters uh, saying Hillary sucks but not like Monica pretty disgusting really but the thing that troubles me is that that the account i read is that women trump supporters couldn't wait to get their 20 dollars out of their wallets quick enough to buy those t-shirts so i think one of the things we have to be careful of here is that the sexism that swirled around gillard didn't just come from men it actually came from other women you know there were women who were who were ready to attack Gillard for her childlessness uh, just as we're seeing in in Britain that there would be men and women who would attack Theresa May maybe in that way but I think it you know I mean let's put aside the fact that uh, there are women and men who can't have children who don't want to have children and for those who can't have children have a deep desire I think it must be incredibly hurtful for them to see something like this played out the other point about it is that the irony is that uh, women's unpaid work as parents and primary carers isn't counted as part of economic activity. So it's all, you know, it's it's as long as I've ever observed this debate, the unpaid work of women is wrongly uh, uncredited and unaccounted for as, as legitimate activity. But leaving that aside to actually have have this enter the debate now that somehow Theresa May might not be capable of being a leader because of her childlessness is not just unedifying, but it's a complete distortion of what it, all the component parts that make a person's good representation, their ability to bring their best selves to the equation. And what do you think um, about two women really being the, the candidates for the to be the new Prime Minister of... Britain. Well, again, uh, you know, in this bleak era with, you know, post-Brexit and whatever, <clears throat> I mean, it is it is a sign of the times uh, to actually have now two women or, or, or the two candidates for the Conservative leadership being female. And, and let's hope that we are moving to a time in, you know, 20, 30 years' time when it is totally unremarkable. That's what we want. Well, I was actually wondering, and I am remarking on it, but um, that we, we know in, in the corporate world, if you want a fixer, if you've got a big problem, you put a woman, a woman in, that, in, in a senior executive or management role often now, more often, and we're seeing more and more women go into marginal seats, for instance, as well. And I wonder if there's something there or whether it's just coincidence as you say it's it should be unremarkable well um, look i think uh i'm i'm not sure that uh, if there's a problem then you know the best option is to put a woman in there to fix it um i think i think what it underscores and we shouldn't lose sight of the the goal is that any workplace any parliamentary forum any corporate decision making realm is always going to be operating better when the diversity is rich and deep. That's the reality. And, you know, if you if you have a situation where, you know, complex negotiations and whatever are required, you need a person who's a great negotiator. Now, it happened to be that that negotiation capacity was one of Gillard's fortes. Is it Malcolm Turnbull's? Well, we'll see over the next months. And I just want to return briefly to, to the idea of negativity or, or positivity in politics because, um, I mean, Tony Abbott talked about, uh, you know, if he had have been running uh, for being the Prime Minister this time around, he would have run a much sort of um, a campaign around strong borders and so on. We didn't quite see that this time with the coalition. Turnbull was a little bit more nuanced in, in what he was talking about with this kind of jobs and growth mantra. Do you think we've at all entered a new era with um, Turnbull and Shorten kind of agreeing to work together or do you think that will kind of disintegrate as this parliament comes to be? Look, I've got I've got total faith in the bully boy adversarial masculine culture 
uh, not to let us down in that regard. I think we'll ultimately see more of the same. I think, I think what they don't realise is that whole adversarial, belligerent lack of bipartisanship is at the core of people's disquiet of of our national politics. And you know, I mean, I I find it really curious that you know we can have a coalition of the Tories, of the Conservatives, between the Liberal and National Party, they have actually an agreement and then they have National Party people who come in as ministers. What do we have on the other side of politics? We have a Labor Party and the Greens who are at one another, like cat and dogs, who can't actually summons up the, the best insults to one another. Don't you think it's bizarre in this country that we can have a legitimate coalition of the centre-right... But apparently we're not allowed to even think of a legitimate coalition of the centre-left. Yeah, look, I must say I, I do um, smile sometimes when, when I hear particularly the coalition criticising a coalition, potential for a coalition on the other side. It does make me laugh. Thank you so much for coming in. It's always great to see you. Mary Crooks, um, Exec Director of the Victoria Women's Trust and always a good person to speak to about politics. It's been great to have you in. Thank you. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Melbourne singer-songwriter Lucy Roloff uh, is no str- stranger to the grapevine. She's been on a number of times over the years. She's also about to release her debut full-length album, This Paradise, uh, happening down at the Gasometer Hotel uh, on Thursday, July 28th. And to tell us all about the release and to play live in studio, very happy to have Lucy here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Hi, Lucy. Hello. <laughs> so I was kind of surprised that um, that this was your first full-length release because you've yeah. been in previously about um, well, your EP back in 2013 and collaborations with others. Was it a, a yeah. long time coming? Um, yeah, it was. So I got um, a grant. I was very lucky to get a grant through the Australian Council for the Arts, um, of the Arts, for the Arts, <laughs> um, about, oh, God, like two years ago or something. And then we started recording in... December of 2014 um so yeah since then that's you know that was when it began and it was kind of about maybe a year of just kind of refining and doing arrangements and stuff like that so definite slow burner <laughs> did, did you have the songs pretty much kind of ready to go at the beginning of that process yeah or? they were completely finished so I think actually the last time I was here um when I was um, doing stuff for the EP, I actually played a song that is on the current album now. So some of the songs are quite old. <laughs> <laughs> did, did it change in the process of, of working on arrangements and, and adding things in? Because it's kind of on first listen, um, I kind of felt like it was a, a pretty straightforward um, vocal guitar release, but there's yeah. a lot of textures and, and layers to it that are, that are quite subtle. Yeah, we, we actually added quite a lot. Um, and... I guess usually it's a process of adding heaps and then taking quite a bit away. But I was pretty happy with most of the stuff we added, so not much got taken away. Um, yeah, so we recorded the vocals and the guitars, and then I went away and did the arrangements for um, the harp, flute, which I played, um, and then uh, clarinet and saxophone, which my friend um, Rosalind Hall played, um, and then Alex from Magic Hands, my other duo, he did like guitar and bass, and then um, Tony Dupay and Claire Deke. Um, who recorded the album, added all the other amazing textures and bits and pieces. It's pretty handy being able to, to play the harp and flute and, and yeah. everything else. Yeah, I started playing instruments at like five years old, so I've you know, accrued a few. <laughs> but, I mean, do you have a harp? I you do, s- yeah. I actually only started playing it 18 months ago. So, um, yeah, it's a beautiful Celtic harp, wooden, um, I guess, I don't know when it was made, quite a while ago, 15 years ago. Yeah, it's lovely. Did um, I mean, how how do you go learning an instrument like the harp? Because it's uh, it's pretty difficult from from what I've heard. I heard that too, um, and I think I remember when I was growing up, my music teachers would say, "Oh, the harp's really hard," and you know, never bother about that. And I think I was doing cello at the time, um, but I found it really easy. And I think it's because um, concert harps are kind of I think they're the tricky one with all the pedals and stuff. But Celtic harps, they're in tune and. You can't really go too wrong. So, um, yeah, they're a bit kinder on beginners, I think. I suppose if you've already played the cello, you're used to having to hear the notes. (laughs) Yeah, that too. Yeah, hearing the notes and um, getting a feel for where they are on the instrument. (laughs) Is it very hard to acquire a harp in Um, Victoria? Kind of. Like, it does seem to be quite rare that people take it up and maybe 
I don't know, kids don't take it up because their parents are like, oh, that's so expensive and heavy and, you know, just start with the violin. <laughs> you, have to, you have to upgrade the vehicle to get you around with yeah, it in there. Yeah, big time. I think I've almost <laughs> pulled my shoulder about 15 times lugging that half around. It's you need so roadies. Heavy. Yeah, I really do. I think you have it on wheels, do you? Like you have a no, case with wheels? No, I've got like a soft case and I carry it over my shoulder, but I definitely need to um, invest in wheels because I think I'm going to damage something pretty soon. <laughs> What's it like? Because um, you come from a, a classical background and, and learning music from a really young age. Mm. Did that, was it an easy transition to make to, to play, I mean, kind of, I guess, folk-inspired music in this case, but also kind of more electronic in, in Magic Hands? Was that an easy transition? Um, I'm not really sure. I guess it was just something, like the electronic music was just something I kind of liked and that I had sort of grown on me in the past, I don't know, five years or something. Um, and so when I met Alex, um, it was quite interesting because, you know, we came from different backgrounds. I was more classical folk and he was pop like crazy experimental stuff but you know whenever we'd be listening to our ipods or whatever it was always this electro sort of music and we were thinking we could do something like that you know (laughs) so kind of bringing those um forces together um but yeah the transition into class class from classical into folk i think i resisted for a very long time because um i always kind of naturally um went towards that sort of classical sort of feel and then I think as a teenager I rebelled and I really wanted to be in like rock yeah. <laughs> and I was a metalhead for a few years and um yeah so I kind of did a full circle and came back around to that um so yeah I don't know if it was a transition more just like a carry on from the classical world mm. yeah well friends I've, I've known who have learned classical music from a young age have mm. sometimes found it hard even to to write their own music because they've yeah. come from this kind of you know rote learning playing exactly what's written on on the page and not really sort of deviating too much from that big time yeah i think when i was learning um i think yeah because i started at piano at five and i did that for maybe 11 years and in that time i did a bunch of other instruments and i would always be trying to play things differently and the teachers would be sort of raining me and like no it's pianissimo <laughs> you know and then maybe that's why at 16 i I started um, playing guitar and I refused to have lessons because I had this sort of superstition that it would ruin the love of it or something. Mm. Um, yeah, so I guess it was a rebelling against having to play these, like, sort of prescribed pieces. <laughs> Is there any plans to start a metal band? Um, no, not, not this <laughs> round. I did have one for, like, a week when I was right. 16, yeah. Um, did you have a name? Yeah, we were called... I don't think it's correct translation but we're called Belle Hain which is French for beautiful hate right <laughs> what we thought it was that's good <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I was pretty bad so anyway. <laughs> that's Lucy Roloff playing live in studio from her forthcoming release This Paradise every time with a song we just heard and it's um it's a perfect kind of sound and and album to be releasing in winter it feels like yeah that's what i thought too that's why i was kind of glad it came out a bit later because um i don't see it as a summer kind of jam (laughs) (laughs) you you recorded this album uh out in gippsland i understand how did that all come about and then where did you put it all together um so tony dupay who i worked with on the last ep um he's kind of known to find these really amazing places out and about in different areas um i think he used to live alone in like some remote church in new south wales or somewhere at some point um anyway so yeah uh he was just happened to be living in this house in Karimbara and um yeah one day i came over and he's like oh come in this room and opens this door and it's this giant hall just attached to the house um yeah so this hundred year old parish hall wow yeah so um i would drive out and we just did a weekend of recording all the main stuff um and then bit by bit i'd drive up you know make a day of it and take different or whoever was with me to come and record their bits and yeah it was nice it was like an excuse to get out of melbourne mm. did, did so did you use kind of natural reverb and, and the sound of the room yeah to- lots of that kind of thing so mic set up all throughout the room um if you listen on a few of the songs there's some crazy birds and you know sometimes cars going past and it just kind of worked like mm. you know it didn't need to be edited out it was really quite nice and kind of made extra kind of ambience or something <laughs> <laughs> um and in your kind of uh, non-music life you you're an illustrator as, as a freelancer tell us a little yes. bit about, about that um yeah i've been doing that for about two years or something um and i kind of do a fair bit of sort of private work like um pencil portraits for people um and i've done different stuff for like magazines and some art direction um animation so moving a lot into like digital animation at the moment 
which Alex and I have been collaborating on, so we're like constantly collaborating. Uh, <laughs> who wants pencil portraits? I suppose when I think of pencil portraits, I think of yeah. courts, you know, that's where oh, you yeah, see a lot of sure. them, don't you? I started thinking about that. I was like, that could be good and interesting. <laughs> I think um, there's a real art to that. Yeah. It's um, really fascinating. Yeah. Well, lately I've had a few people ask for them of like their kids or their pets. So people don't usually ask for them for themselves, um, but it's usually where kids or animals are involved. They're keen. <laughs> Can you get a, a pet to stay still long enough to do a pencil portrait? From photos, definitely from photos. Right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about my cat and I'm like, no, nah, he wouldn't have it. No way. <laughs> I actually tried to sketch my cat the other night and there's about eight sketches on the page because she kept moving and they're just the most vague. There's no way I could do a fully rendered portrait <laughs> in that time. <laughs> well, you're um, you're launching the album at the Gas Somewhere on Thursday, July 28th. Who have you got uh, playing with you on the night? Um, so we've got James Tom DJing. Um, he's He has two bands, Hyperborea and Krakatau, and he's really cool and has great taste in music. Um, And Mally Songs, who are friends of mine, um, they'll be in duo form, Mike and Kate Skinner. And um, On Diamond, which is Lisa Salvo's new project, new reimagining of her stuff. Yeah, yeah it's fan- beautiful. Fantastic. So that's um that's all happening Thursday, July twenty eighth. Uh, tickets on the door are fifteen bucks, or if you get in early, they're just ten. It all kicks off at eight pm. And um, Lucy Roloff's new album, This Paradise, is out through Lost and Lonesome. And when can people get a copy? Can they buy one now, or is you it? You can pre-order. So we're releasing it on vinyl and CD. So we've got limited of those, which is pretty exciting. Um, so yeah, that's this Friday, the fifteenth. It'll all be launched and ready to rock. Great. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, best of luck with the gig, and thanks much for coming in. Thanks for having me. See you soon. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. It's time for the reading room on the grapevine now and uh, Sally Rippon joins us as she does once a month and I like to say these days, Sally, our best-selling women or woman author in Australia. I love it that you say that. I know. Well, it's very, very true. <laughs> author and illustrator, of course. And this morning, our special guest is Alan Bro. You can see him still every night on the telly answering quiz questions with yeah. specs and specs. But in fact, he's transformed himself into a children's book author and his first book is out. It's called Charlie and the War Against Grannies. And it's so good to have you in talking children's literature, Ellen. Hi, Galia. How are you? Hi, good. Hi, Sally. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. And congrats on the book. Thank you very Uh, much. And we've all read it. Yes. And it's... um it just cracked me up. We I don't all know. laughed out loud, didn't we? Um, <laughs> Charlie and Hills are the main characters in it, and Charlie has the busiest mind, I reckon, of a character I've read in ages. He's just such a busy thinker. I don't know. Sort oh, of reminded me of you a little bit. Oh, no, right. Well, <laughs> I, <did> I, that. <laughs> I, I wanted... I, I sat down to write... Um, I wrote something else. It, it ended up with um, Pam McMillan, the publishers, and the... Claire, who ended up being my editor, said to me, I like the writing, I don't like what it's about. And I went, okay, well, that's all right. She said, could you write me some words? um, I'd written a a teen book, and she said, let's knock it down a few years, supposedly eight, ten plus or something like that. And she said, can you write me some words and we'll see how we go? Have you got an idea? And I did actually have an idea about fighting grannies that I thought might be applicable to that age group and because it's not the sort of story you can use really anywhere else. Like if someone says, have you got a good television idea? Yes, we, we could have a show where we fight grannies. No, go away. <laughs> um, so I wrote um, I wrote some stuff, and I, but I said to her, I'm not certain how to be funny for 10-year-olds. And she said to me, your 10-year-old, everyone's 10-year-old is still in them. It's just some people can get access to it and others can't. So I sat down, I decided to write it in the first person and I sat down and I started writing and it it felt right what I was doing but I do remember the thing I could remember about being that age, Charlie's almost 12, the main character in the book, was there's just so many questions about the world because, and there's so many questions about yourself and you're changing and everyone's changing and your relationships with people are changing and you're starting, you know, when you watch the news, you're starting to understand what's going on. And in fact, you watch the news, like, or you listen to the news, like you're engaged by it. Your body is changing. Everything's changing. You can't just be friends with girls anymore, or maybe you can and all, you know, and yes, I think it's just proved your point that he essentially is <laughs> me and i and i i gave some 
um, pages to my girlfriend to read and I said, does that sound like a 10-year-old? And she said, it sounds like you when you were 10. Which so, is a good place to start, in, isn't it? Because we have a lot of children's authors come in here and a lot of them feel like there's a particular golden period of their childhood that they can tap in really easily to. And people who do do that regularly, they can't imagine what it can't be like to have a... A lot of people don't remember their childhoods, but you have quite a strong memory of your childhood or just yourself as a child. Can you remember yourself at 10 and is that where you draw your your material from? I think I remember the feeling of being that age. Mm. Like there's an awkwardness that is both incredibly difficult and liberating at the same time because if you can sort of embrace that awkwardness you know there are just moments where you just think I'm just completely at odds with the world and I remember being I went to boarding school when I just turned 13 and I was a weird kid like and I felt even weirder when I went to boarding school and I remember it was just horrifying a lot of the time just the whole that age was just just awful but there were other times when I thought I'm glad I'm like this I'm glad that I'm not that I look at things differently and so I suppose it's less incidents like I've only fought grannies a couple of times (laughs) Uh, it's less incidents and more feelings Mm. that I there were there were times when I was writing the book and I felt quite I felt those feelings again and sometimes I just went, oh, I don't like this at all. And um, But I hope that there are certain moments in there when, when I reread the book, and I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Like, I reread the book and there were bits and I just went, oh, really? You wrote that? And you're <laughs> going to expect people to read it? And other moments I went, oh, well, that's good. That sort of got across what I wanted. But I – this is a very long-winded answer to your question. I, I remember the feels – of and being that age. That's to me where the authenticity lies, isn't it? And that's what struck me about your book is it's laugh out loud funny and there's really crazy plot twists and turns. There's some fantastic characters, but there's heart into it, in it and I think that's what kids respond to, that they can recognise themselves in there because you, you feel like a real person. You are present in your book. Oh, good. The young Alan. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that because I, I love books I found most of the process of writing really enjoyable because you get to create your own world. Like the editor uh, was, Claire was great and she helped me a lot to shape it. But essentially they allowed what I wanted to exist. And when you come from a background of working in the theatre or in television or in radio, it's constantly people going, no. No, really? No, you don't want to be doing that. Well, I do want to be doing that. Okay, well, then you're not allowed to do that. And in the book, it was it was great. But I'm very glad to hear that there is heart in it because I, I loved writing it, so maybe a bit of that is right there. I, I love the, the, the breakout part. So there's there's you've got the, the book and the storyline and then there's sort of breakout bits with borders around them with text in there. And that actually reminded me of the way my daughter thinks because she's 10, mm. going, you know, just turned 10, and this idea of kind of plunging into kind of tangent detail and I find it incredibly frustrating and then I read it in the book and I went, oh, this is just how this these kids think mm. in these kind of... You sort of say something and then you jump off to the side and really drill down into detail and I thought, nailed it. Oh, wow, OK. Well, I'm very... I'm very <laughs> no, totally nailed it. <laughs> I'm very happy to hear that. That was uh, basically the breakout bits, um, you know, similar to how there were columns like an article in a newspaper and then there'll be some more interesting facts with yeah. dot points yeah yeah i it was simply it was basically a way to get jokes in uh because i thought um i could just they could stand outside the text and you could look across at them and I could put more jokes in. But if that's the way kids think, well, then bang. <laughs> How to say fart in 12 different languages <laughs> yeah, or something. Yeah. Well, I, had to, still saying that. I <laughs> had to have that fact checked mm-hmm. um, because I, I know that the internet is unreliable, but I thought that if there was one thing that the internet could be relied on for, it would be correct translations into non-English languages of the word fart. Well, I was wrong. Because when we were getting close to the book, um, getting into its final version, Claire, my editor, said to me, right, I'm going to send this fart, uh, how to say fart in 10 different languages, out to a researcher. And I went, great, I'm glad I'm the reason that's happening. And I said, do you have a specific person? She said, no. Strangely, we don't, Alan, but I'll find someone, we'll take it on. So I I received a couple of emails back and forth querying the words for fart because... Most languages, like English, have a different word for flatulence 
as opposed to fart. And I will be honest that in the table, um, how to say fart in 10 different languages, the Norwegian, prump, is actually the Norwegian word for flatulence. Good word, though. That's it. The Norwegian word for fart is... Um, oh, no, the Icelandic word for fart is what I feel. See, these are the things you don't know. It's like when NASA sends something into space, they end up with formica. Well, um, um, in writing this book, I now had and I say fart in Icelandic. Um, prump, I mean, even though it's not officially fart, it's just a great... You've got to put that in there. You do, exactly. So I don't... I don't know how to speak any other languages apart from that, but I did, I did make somebody go and research it, and then they sent me an email back saying, "Do you want to, you can choose the different fart words?" Um, and then there was an email with the subject line querying your farts. <laughs> <laughs> and to your me, work here th- is done. that's exactly it. It was all worthwhile. Have you? I mean, in, given that you're kind of trying to tap into a, a much younger version of yourself and and finding those things that you found funny and and you know difficult at those times, did you feel tempted, or did you at all show the book to to kids as you were writing it? No, I didn't. Um, I don't. My daughter has just turned five. Uh, she was four when I started writing the book, and she's just not interested in it at all. We, she likes the fact that I've read a book, and she likes the cover, but we started reading, and she just went, this is boring, Dad, and we, I think we, we ended up reading one of Sally's books. <laughs> so um, so hopefully, I said, oh, well, well, we'll get back to it when you're a bit older. Yeah, we might, she said. I, I didn't really have access to any older children, mm. and um, also... There's a lot of pressure asking someone to read what you're writing, and I'm sure Sally's had this experience. You have to choose your re- you have to choose people very wisely, or not give it to anybody because there's a sort of there is a re- yeah there's a real pressure. So I just relied on my editor, and I she has helped me get it right. I've had a bit of feedback now from kids and they really seem to like it. Yeah, and it's tricky to, to know when to ask somebody to read something too because you were saying even in the pages you were changing and adjusting things. So I often find if I send a draft out to a friend to read, I'll say, no, no, actually, can you stop reading that one? I've got another yeah. better version. <laughs> and children are just going to listen to you if you engage with them, so it's hard to get an idea of how authentic their attention is mm. too. So you, you really want to put it out to an audience that yeah. don't know you. Your mum's going to love it, your daughter's... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the, you hear, you read about authors who go, each night I sit in bed and I read what I've written that day to my partner. My girlfriend would punch me in the face <laughs> if I suggested that as an idea. But also, kids' feedback is really... It's not that useful sometimes. A, a child can absolutely love something, and you go, so did you enjoy that? Yep. Yeah, it's good. And, and mm. that's what you get. Yeah. Or they um, can hate it, and you go, what was that like? No, it was okay. Mm. And their parents will translate and go, they didn't like it at all. Yeah. Or they'll go, yeah, yeah, I... I, I like that. And they'll go, well, that's about as good as you'll get. Like, that's that's their favourite thing ever in the world. So as a as a, a device for strengthening the manuscript, the feedback of 8 to 12-year-olds, not all that useful. Mm. And it's not really their area. Mm. Like, they want to read their book and then go and punch another kid yeah. or <laughs> put, go and roll around nude in the grass. Like, instead of going, so I'll take a few notes (laughs) in the margin. Multiple choice. Yeah. Yeah. So there's some fantastic characters in there. That was one of the things that my son and I loved about it. And when we were reading it together, we both did the lurker on each other for quite a while after, which has become our favourite character now. And you were telling me that you've spoken to people who have quite a lot of lurkers in their childhood. Tell me a little bit about how you came up with the character of the lurker, because he's the favourite of mine. Well, the lurker is just this kid who's always around, and you don't know that they're there, and then you turn around and there they are. And... Yeah, uh, he he was based on a kid who lived next door to my in-laws many, many years ago. He was a little kid, and he just... You'd turn around, and there he was, and he didn't say anything, and he just lurked. And it's really interesting because I've a lot of adults have said to me... I was on the radio a, a couple of weeks ago, and a bloke rang up, and he goes, Mate, that bloody lurker... <laughs> He said, we had one called The Shadow. Oh, my God, he just gave me the shits. <laughs> He'd be always, you turn around and there he was. And I just, I liked, I liked the idea. The lurker is very important in the book because, because his, 
the thing that annoys people about him, the fact that he's always just there, is his strength because he can be around and no one notices. So he finds out he is Hills, who is... um, So Charlie's the main character and the sort of almost main character with him is his best friend, Hills. She wants to join the army and she acts like she was already in the army. She lives in a caravan on the front um, lawn of her mum's house because she built a flamethrower and burnt the house a bit. So her mother made her move out into the caravan. She has the lurker as an intelligence asset and she knows how to use him. She gives him packets of assorted biscuits. That's in payment and he finds out things for her. <laughs> so he just came... I don't know why I... He, he just came up, this idea of a kid who was always around and I went, oh, he would be, he would be useful. Like, actually... Like, you might not be friends with him but he would be a useful asset. And Charlie doesn't like him at all because um, and because the lurker doesn't like him and and that's one of the Charlie doesn't like the lurker the lurker doesn't like Charlie but Charlie is upset that a person he doesn't like doesn't like him and that's you know and that's one of those sort of um, big emotional problems that you have when you're a kid wait a minute I don't like you but you don't like me why don't you like me what's wrong with me you're going but I don't why should I worry about your opinion so he just he was sort of in my head and then he became useful. Mm. And I think you sort of... I don't know whether you just store things up and one day you're writing and you go, wait a minute, that thing that I... that person I've thought about for a while, we could put them in here and see how they go. So that's yeah. that's what happened. That's great. I really like how um, you've got rid of the parents in um, this story, Ellen. Um, the, not only is um, Hills out on the front lawn in the caravan and her mum, you know, they've got, like, an agreement with each other that Hills needs to be home at a certain time or whatever, but... Uh, Charlie is a digital orphan, yeah. and so his parents are out of the book as well because they're too busy on their on their phones. Yeah, so basically, a digital orphan yeah, is a kid whose whose parents are so interested in their phones, their smartphones, that they basically have forgotten that they have a child. And so then Charlie is free to go and have an adventure. Yeah. Mm. And it was a combination of I was when I started writing this book, I was reading David Copperfield, and I it it, it occurred to me that he. Charlie should be an orphan because it does. It, it, it allows them to move around freely. Yeah, and Hills has an agreement with her mother that as long as she's back in time for dinner and not seriously injured, she can do whatever she likes. And um, which, you know, that's not a bad way of doing things. And I, I was toying with Charlie being an orphan, but I sort of thought the orphan things, it's, it's been done and it's been done well. And I need to find a different way of doing it if I'm going to do it at all and I took my daughter to the park and we were playing around and there was a guy pushing his daughter on a swing while holding his phone up to his face and flicking through things he might have been checking Facebook or Instagram or something like that and so he wasn't looking at his daughter he was just pushing and then he just forgot to push and the swing hit him in the side of the head and he just went down on his ass. I know I pissed myself my daughter actually said to me dad what's so funny and I just I was crying the tan bark was soaking up all my tears and uh, when I sat down to write next I just went the two the David Copperfield thing and the orphan thing and the guy being hit it's still great i just the look on his face as he crumpled was just like wait i haven't liked that (laughs) and i thought oh maybe he's just ignored by his parents because they're on their phones all the time Mm. and um i was really i it it just it, it seemed to anchor the story in the real world as well which allowed i think I, I didn't do this on purpose because I'm not skilled enough yet, but it, in in the final wash-up, it allowed me to go off to quite far away places um, imaginatively because it was, it was rooted in the experience that many kids have. Like, we go to swimming on the weekend, and I can't think of anything funnier than watching those kids swim. Like, it's just hysterical. And watching the swimming teacher, how they just don't drown them. Like, they're just so unruly, all of them. And there's all these parents on their phones. And I know, you think, it's true. I love swimming. I go, I'm the swimming lesson person. Uh, it's usually dads, but anyway, I, I do it. And my daughter spent half the time under the water, so they're bouncing up and down under the water. It's like, how can you hear them say yeah. anything? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, the, it, and it's like have you noticed? I, I have noted that the new signal for I'm drowning is with a closed fist. Because what children seem to love to do is bounce up and down 
up and out of the water with one hand sticking up, looking like they're drowning. <laughs> they're not. They're not drowning, waving. No, yeah. exactly. So now it has to be with a closed fist because I think a lot of parents <laughs> were jumping into the or a lot of um, lifesavers were jumping into the water to save children who were just like, no, I'm just having fun, dude. Leave me alone. <laughs> your whistle, you've ruined your whistle. <laughs> yeah, it's As, not the parents, they're on their phone. No, that's exactly it. They're liking a picture of a kitten swimming <laughs> while the actual children are swimming in front of them. Yeah. As the, I mean, this is your your first um, uh, first time you've written a, a book, a children's book. Has this yeah. untapped something in, in you? Do you want to sort of do more? Yes. Well, contractually, I'm obliged to do one more. Mm. Uh, so this is when I'm feeling positive. This is my first book. When I'm not, it's, this is my second to last book. Uh, no, I've really in, enjoyed this. Uh, and Sally and I were chatting briefly before, and I I, I am um, I'm much closer to fifty than I am to forty, and it has taken me a long time to discover. How, what I like doing, and it's um, this and being in a band, and so I'm in a loud dad band, uh, the, you know, very loud and offensively loud, and it's just great. And writing kids books, and so it's nice to have come to those two things. So, uh, is the the loud dad band, Alan, the one that performed at the comedy festival? Yeah, last the Rails. So it's me and Casey Benito. Um, and we did. We in fact did a gig. Yeah, like a performance band. Yeah, we're sort well, of. Well, I mean, bands perform, but you know, it's like a. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a conceit behind it, the the Norels, But we did a gig at Bar Open recently, which was really fun because a lot of people had said to us, "I think it would make more sense in a pub." And I said, "Well, a lot of things make more sense in a pub. <laughs> like things that I've said often make a lot more sense in the context of a pub." And we did a pub gig, and it was just so much fun. So loud, and a guy with a big beard mixed us, which is always good. Like not a like not like a Brunswick beard, like a bikey beard. Like it was really fun, and it was loud, and my ears were ringing for days afterwards. And I thought, oh, I did that. I made my ears hurt by playing. <laughs> and it was just yeah, it was it's really fun. But um, yes, I, I want to keep on doing this. I really like. I like Charlie and I like Hill, so the second book's going to be called Charlie and the Karaoke Cockroaches, mm. where he discovers an ancient, um, three ancient um, singing cockroaches trapped in a karaoke machine. Because why wouldn't you? Um, and then I think if these are successful, hopefully it'll carry on. But it, it's all it'll, it's all sort of based on um, whether people like the initial two and if so hopefully it can be an ongoing thing so it sounds like a lot of your earlier work was very collaborative how are you finding that switch and i guess bouncing ideas off other people getting out there performing getting the immediate feedback as opposed to just being in your room in your head 24 7 how's that working out for you well i like i I do like working with other people but there is there's a selfishness about working with yourself which I really enjoy. Like I'm 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 doing things and there's no one telling me not to do them. And sometimes they're just wrong. Sometimes they should be telling and that's what the editor's for, to just go, This is good, this is good. What? <laughs> what is that? Okay, well we can cut that one out. Um, I find the discipline very hard. Mm. So I'm essentially a stay at home dad, so my day is bordered by my day starts with the drop-off at school and finishes with the pick-up at school. And, and that, that time comes around really fast. Mm. Really, doesn't it? And yep. so the thing is, I'm at home, and I've got a really nice place to work at home, but there's also the laundry mm. and, you know, dehydrating spinach leaves so that some, my <laughs> daughter is knock, eating something green. You need to knock off and go and hang out with Sally after this as well, because you've been through all this, Sally, <laughs> yeah. haven't you? Forever. So I sort of thought I could get an office, but then I have this lovely space at home, and why should I? So the discipline is hard but i do like it though in the middle of this i sent an email to my editor claire just went it's all crap and she sent me an email back going good you're on the right track then because that's what should be happening and sally has told me um that that just happens for every book you write never goes away never goes away so there's that to look forward to (laughs) Um, and i'm putting off starting the second book. i've got to start the second book but i'm i'm sort of I've got all these lessons that I've learned from the first one that I want to apply, but now I know what I'm getting myself in for. The first one was sort of like, 
the first relationship that you have sex Experiment. in. Experimental. Yeah, yeah that, that's it. You just go, <laughs> I must be great at this. It's, it's natural. Uh, surely. And then you then this, then you have another relationship and they go, that's not, no. dude, that's not what you do. <laughs> Who were you with to begin with? <laughs> so I'm, 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 I'm slightly concerned about that. But I like, I like being able to do whatever I like. Mm. It's just sitting down and making it happen. Alan Bro is with us and Sally Rippin in the reading room on Triple R, The Grapevine. And, I mean, writing it's one thing, Alan. Now you've got to sort of promote it. I know that sort of talking on the radio about it is part of it, but getting out into schools and in front of kids and all that sort of thing seems to go along with children's mm. books. Are you doing that type of thing? Yeah, I'm doing some... Um, I'm actually going out to the Sun Bookstore in Yarraville this Saturday to do an event. So I did a launch last week and um i'm going to try i'm i'm going up to sydney to do some publicity stuff so we're doing some events and hopefully we'll start getting into schools i'm quite comfortable performing in front of children because you know like you know if you're not holding them and um, at my book launch there were quite a few kids sitting in the front and they occupied themselves when there were boring bits by doing colouring or looking the other way or my daughter particularly talking loudly. Um, <laughs> but, no, I'm very I'm comfortable doing that. I've written songs specifically related to the book. And um, so I don't, I don't mind doing this. I've done it with all of the things that I've ever done. Like, I've, I'm happy to get out there. I, and um, I, I know that some authors, uh, they don't like it or just almost physically can't do it, but I'm more than happy to get out there. I, like, this is a potentially new career. I want people to buy it so the publishers go, well, this guy's good. Oh. It sounds like the fun part for you is getting out there and, you know, performing in front of kids. Yeah, yeah, it is. I, I really like it, and, and I like reading from the, the book. It's nice because it's already written. So I just choose which bits I want to read. And I've, I've, I've written songs. I've written a song called How to Blow Up a Granny because a granny blows up near the end of the book. And that's fun because, you know, kids... I performed the song and you could see kids going, he's talking about blowing up grannies. <laughs> and a kid said to me afterwards, have you done that? And I went, no, it's a fictional song. I don't recommend that you actually try and blow up your granny because one of the advices, you can fill your granny up with um, vinegar and baking soda and that will make them explode. And I thought to myself, actually, that's like... That's feasible that a child might think that was okay to do. <laughs> so I have to warn people that, that, you know, don't actually don't try this with your home granny. <laughs> it reminds me of the, the when the bum went psycho book and it's like, did that really happen? Yeah, yep. It really it does, it really it does did. Yes, it did happen. It's a true story. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> I, and I, and that's, that's fun about also about, you know, performing in front of children. You say things and they take you literally mm. and it's sort of there's a joy in that because they're just in it and then when they don't like it they're out of it and you try and reel them back in um so it's good and that's the lovely thing about writing for this age group in particular you know slightly older you'd have to create a portal that um would explain why you were going into this parallel universe but when you're writing for this age group it just is isn't it yeah. you, know, you can say what you like you can invent whatever world you're you want to, and you just tell the kids this is the way it is, and they're going to they're going to believe you. That's it. And the only the 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 thing you have to get right then is the internal logic of your own mm -hmm. universe. And and if the intern because the thing is that kids seem to be able to pick up flaws in the logic, yeah, yeah, very very quickly, yeah. which is great. Um, if they could articulate that, it would be a very useful skill because there are often flaws in the internal logic of a, a, a created universe. So, yeah, that's... I, make, once you've made it all hang together, yeah, they're just willing to go on the ride. Mm. Well, enjoy the ride of this book, Alan, because um, we're out of time. But um, I know you want to sell the book, but we've actually got two copies to give away. So um, two, pe lovely. two people aren't going to have to buy it. Um, Charlie and the War Against Grannies by Alan Bro. We've got two copies for Triple R subscribers. You can call in and um, get yourself one, but you have to be able to come pick it up at the station. Um, the number is 93881027. And um, all the best and looking forward to having you back sometime, maybe with your band. Although Casey's got a show on Tuesday night, so maybe you perform on Tuesday night. No, no, we don't. No, you we, don't. No, we don't. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come in with the band. I'll talk to Casey about it. Yeah, yeah, it sounds great. Yeah. Thank okay. you so much, Sally, and great. we'll catch you again in a month's time. Fantastic. Thank, Thank you. you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.